welcome to Hollow Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And I'm Joshua Unruh. This episode is about the genre-exploding movie Brick. So throw one at me if you want, but I've got all five senses and I slept last night, so that puts me six up on the lot of you. Uh, this month, we have special guest Josh Unruh, who is the co-host of Listen Up A-Holes from Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions, and the host of Superhero University. Uh, we are so thrilled to have you on to talk about Brick, Josh. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Uh, hard-boiled detective stuff and noir is like the other thing I do after superheroes. So, I'm into it. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So why don't we start off by having you tell us uh, what the movie is about? This is a hard-boiled detective movie set in a Southern California high school for no discernible reason. But it has all the genre tropes you'd expect. A tough guy brought low by a woman who has to get in deep and try to help her, even if it's already too late. A crime boss with an organization about to boil over. A femme fatale with more angles than she's got curves. And everybody has so much dirty laundry that there's not much chance of coming out clean. I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. It's so good. So this was the directorial debut of Ryan Johnson, most recently of The Last Jedi Infamy. A little bit controversial <laughs> Star Wars film there. Yeah. He wrote this based on his fascination with Dashiell Hammett, an author who he discovered because of the Coen brothers, which totally makes sense because the Coen brothers also love their hard-boiled detectives and noir films. Um, a little tidbit of information I found really fascinating was that uh, Johnson would let the actors read Hammett but would not allow them to watch noir films, but they were allowed to watch Billy Wilder comedies. Which is oh, great wow. because I love Wilder's noir stuff. Uh, Double Indemnity is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and once I read that fact, I was like, well, that comes through. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Wait, so um, what are Billy Wilder comedies? Because I know nothing. So Billy Wilder was a director in the 30s and 40s and, and okay. on. He he was around for a while. Very famous at the time. Um Marilyn Monroe's Seven Year Itch was his. Right. Um, are you? I know Wilder from like Sabrina. Yeah, um, yeah. Like yeah. I've seen that movie. Yeah. Um, and then I think like more. I, I haven't seen his comedies, honestly, or I'm sure I've seen them, but I haven't like watched them over and over. But I think The Apartment is his most famous, uh, mm -hmm. you know, comedy film. But like I said, I'm here Some, like, for yeah. the stuff. Like that's right. Yes. Okay. That's right. See, I, I know them, I've seen them, but I don't think about them nearly as often as I think about Double Indemnity. Like, I just, yeah. come on, it's Double Indemnity. Um, are you guys familiar with that movie? Have you guys seen that one? Um, so, confession time. For me, like, cinema basically starts with The Graduate. I, like, don't really believe in <laughs> movies that were made before 1968. Uh Oh, we're going to fight. Do you fight. believe they exist? Oh, or... do, do they? I don't know. Like, um, <laughs> I, so I've seen Casablanca and I've seen North by Northwest because. Okay. But I okay. I honestly remember nothing about them. Like, it's, I, I know that it happened, like, factually, but I could tell you nothing about them because they just, like, 
old movies don't stick in my brain. And so it's not something that I have a familiarity with at all. Well, if you enjoyed Brick as much as it sounds like you did, there are a few that I would suggest you go back and give another try. Um, Double Indemnity tops my list for that, but uh, The Maltese Falcon with Humphrey Bogart is also a Dashiell Hammett novel originally. And um, So I have actually, is, I've read The Maltese Falcon, but I have not seen the movie. The movie is one of my tiny number of movies that are better than the book. Okay, okay, I'll have to check that out. Now, I like Dashiell Hammett, but I don't love Dashiell Hammett. So when it got kind of, uh, you know, rethought, reimagined into the movie, it it just worked a little bit better for me. And and another name that's going to come up a lot as I talk about this is Raymond Chandler. And he wrote the dialogue for Double Indemnity. And if you have an ear for Chandler's dialogue, you could you could tell. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Everybody talks just like they do in this movie all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the cast a little bit, because we've talked about Brendan, who is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, in his uh, very handsome teenage years. Like, who else is in this thing? <laughs> I mean, sadly, not a lot of other people you would recognize. Mm-hmm. Emily de Ravine, who I knew primarily from Lost and Watch Me Date Myself, Roswell. Right. Oh, yeah, wow. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I know her from uh, um, Once Upon a Time. Uh, she's Belle. Oh, that's cool. I did not realize that. Uh, and then for me, the only other person I recognized in this movie was Richard Roundtree as the assistant vice principal, whose name is literally Truman, only they spell it like true man. And by the way, you're in a hard-boiled <laughs> detective movie. That means whatever that name's trying to tell you, it's the opposite. That's, he's not a good guy. Right. <laughs> not a straight shooter. Um, but I know Richard Roundtree from Shaft. The 70s hard-boiled detective exploitation movie. So Absolutely. watch this snake swallow its tail. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We're talking about Shaft. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That guy. And in that, Roundtree would have been on the other side of the desk. And I did recognize him the first time I saw it because I was like, oh, yeah, Shaft. Because this was, you know, in the days of just go to Blockbuster or whatever, this was like the line that I would follow down. Like I would discover hard-boiled detective stuff completely accidentally through Raymond Chandler. And then I would go, oh, there's movies. Neat. And then I would see these influences on my superhero comics because you have um, Luke Cage, who's basically right. superpowered Shaft. And yep. as soon as I realized he was superpowered Shaft, I'd go to the video store and watch Shaft and then go, oh, this is just a de detective story. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it would just, yeah. I get it. All of this gets wrapped together. So, but yeah, those are the only three people I recognized. So that actually might be a good transition into some of the production info that I learned from watching the director's commentary last night. Ryan Johnson wrote his first version of the script in 1997, the year after he got out of film school. And then it took him six to seven years to get the movie made um, because he, you know, it sounds right. <laughs> it's it's a weird movie and he was unknown. So it was really hard for them to get the money to get it made. They had a really long time to do the casting for like an indie movie. It was actually casted in a very traditional way. They just had tons of people come in and um, audition for the casting director. So they were able to get a lot of really awesome, really unknown people. Well, the people that you're just gonna be able to pay scale. Yeah. Right? Like right. we don't have it a budget. Budget, what is that? 
Yeah, so you know. so this movie was actually funded by Ryan Johnson's family and friends and like the family and friends of the the cast and crew. Uh, it had a $450,000 budget, which basically means that everybody was paid way less than they would normally be paid. Um, so it was filmed in San Clemente, California, which is where Ryan Johnson grew up. Um, and it was actually filmed at his high school. So it was a place that he... Uh, had friends who would unlock the door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They probably would not have let him do it there if he hadn't had a personal connection to the school. And because San Clemente is like just outside of the area in which um, it is both reasonable and legally acceptable to have people like drive back to their apartments at the end of shooting, they had to put everybody up. So it was a location shoot. And so everyone was living in this little, like, hippie village. Uh, and every <laughs> night after they were done filming, they would just, like, sit and, like, play guitar and drink. Um, there's, like, an anecdote on the uh, commentary track where uh, Nora, the actress who plays uh, the femme fatale character, uh, apparently she just, like, tripped and totally destroyed Ryan Johnson's guitar at some point during the filming. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of people I'm surprised I haven't seen in a ton of other things. I know. She's so good. Um, she is so good. What's, oh, Nora Zahetner. I really loved her because she is totally very much in that femme fatale mode, but she's not 100% in the traditional femme fatale mode, right? Like, she definitely plays that role, and when she plays it, she's doing exactly that thing. But sort of in between there... Um, she's, I don't know, I don't know what to say, like, too cute, almost, to be as dangerous as femme fatales mm. are always obviously dangerous. Like, a lot of times in the voiceover, you have the detective going, well, this is bad, because nobody who looks like this comes to an office like mine, you know? Yeah. Um, you just <laughs> right. know, uh, even the characters know, but she's, plays that character, but does not necessarily always... Look, she sounds the part without always looking the part. And that is an, kind of another thesis for the movie, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually... That's really good, yeah. He ta Ryan Johnson talks about that a, a lot. The reason why they set it in high school was basically enable them to make the movie in a straightforward way, but sort of without having it be too influenced by the actual hard-boiled noir movies. Um, that's why you mentioned he had them read Hammett but not actually watch any hard-boiled or noir movies. He wanted to do just, like, a straightforward noir story, but you can't do that today, right? Because, like, the only way that we're really exposed to hard-boiled is through parody, right? Like, it's on SNL. It's on Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> well, or or it winds up getting slipped in as sort of like the pill at the you know in the middle of the uh, the cookie dough or whatever. Yeah. You know? Or it's it's there where you don't expect it. Like I said, it's all over westerns now after spaghetti mm -hmm. westerns. You know, mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I've seen a non noir western since Clint Eastwood first walked across the uh, Italian countryside. You know, <laughs> right. Um. And even before that, it was starting to creep in because, like, I would make the the case that, like, The Magnificent Seven is a serious noir piece or hard-boiled piece. And they were probably being influenced by the literature at the time more than the movies, you know.
I have to draw kind of an a line between noir and hard boiled. Yeah. So not for not just for pedantry, but so noir <laughs> is really the film style, right? Like um there's a lot of tropes kind of associated with it with like uh the voiceover and you know that that kind of thing. It's uh very stark lighting choices. This is where you get like the very bright mm, right. lines between the very dark Venetian blinds, you know, and it's the mm. the neon sign outside is what's actually lighting the scene. Noir is very much a visual style, less genre choices most of the time. Like, I I don't want to say definitively that's how it is, right? But, and the reason that it gets kind of conflated with hard-boiled stuff is a lot of the earliest noir pictures were based on hard-boiled detective fiction. And these were detective stories, ostensibly mysteries, although you'll note there's not really a mystery to solve (laughs) per se. Yeah, it's not like an Agatha Christie style mystery or anything. Exactly, exactly. And these would have been appearing in pulp magazines in the late 30s. So this was like mass media. You had a nickel in your pocket. You bought a pulp magazine. And this this was the trashiest of trashy fiction that you had access to at the time. And they're called pulps because they're printed on cheap paper. Like the whole point was they were getting you stories in your hand on the cheap. You would read and throw away. And so a lot of the earliest noir pictures were based on those types of stories. So. Okay. That makes sense. I guess. Yeah. As sort of just like a casual observer, I think I thought the word noir meant hard boiled. I think I was, there was like a, They've kind of become conflated, maybe, if you're not, like, a more serious student of of what those things actually are. Yeah, and that's and that's fine. I, I, I don't want to, you know, just be like, oh, this is what things mean. But because there's still a lot of overlap there, right? Like, a lot of the things you see where the person goes in thinking it's one kind of thing and then it turns into something much larger. And they're fairly normal people who get in way over their head, you know, that kind of thing that still carries through. Yeah. But like, I would maintain black Swan is noir ballet and the wrestler mm. is a noir wrestling movie, huh. you know, totally. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Uh, but they are very not hard boiled. <laughs> I'm wondering how much of my misunderstanding is a direct result of Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> <laughs> Guy noir. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that that was like my main exposure to hard-boiled detective stories growing up was just listening to Prairie Home Companion. That's so funny. It's I think it's a really good distinction for Brick actually. If people haven't watched the the movie yet to keep in mind that it is a hard-boiled detective movie because like you said visually speaking, I think this has a much more verite kind of a look to it and it doesn't mm-hmm. have those like completely uh you know like all blue scenes all red scenes yeah you know yeah. sharp lines and stuff like that it, it's it's very like oh this is sunny california for sure like you this is the real world it's not this highly stylized thing yeah no that's perfect that's actually perfect location too for a lot of the uh the hard-boiled detective stuff that i like um I mentioned I prefer Raymond Chandler to Dashiell Hammett, and Chandler sets all of his stuff like in um, in L.A., you know, circa mm-hmm. 1940, you know, yeah. and um, and it is always this like dirty Southern California. It's shiny up here. It's kind of the way we would have thought about like Miami by the 80s, 
you know, where it's kind of got this shiny right. gloss, but if you go very far underneath it, it's like, what is this muck and mire, you know? Um, and you get this uh, Veronica Mars, yeah, a hard-boiled yeah. detective TV show, does this, like creates a dirty Southern California town oh my God. in which to place You just blew my mind. I totally didn't even make that connection. But yeah, this is like very Veronica Mars. I'd say, I'd say Veronica Mars is also doing a more modern take on hard-boiled stuff. It's not quite so beholden to, you know, sort of the, I don't want to say source material, the inspirations, yeah. right? Um, it's still very, you're not going to come out of this clean, you're in over your head. Because, like, in this case, setting brick in a high school was a little bit of an afterthought. You know, it was to oh, differentiate weird. it from its own source material, from its own inspirations, yeah. you know. Whereas Veronica Mars is like, well, let's make a sexy teen drama with a detective lead character and inject it, you know, with some of these hard-boiled or noir tropes. But yeah, yeah. He basically, Ryan Johnson wanted to sort of reimagine what this type of movie could be based on just the book source material. And by setting it in a high school and divorcing it from, like, that traditional noir visual language... Mm -hmm. um, be able to do something more fresh and authentic without being so dependent on what came before it. When you say they divorce it from the visual language, but it's more like they kind of mutate it because Brendan's coat is the trench coat. I mean, it isn't, but you know, yeah. it is. And where hats would have told us something very serious about every character in 1945, now it's the shoes everybody's shoes so fun oh, fact that's a really good point uh brendan's shoes are actually joseph gordon levitt's shoes i'm unsurprised yeah they like <laughs> yeah <laughs> they had him try on a bunch of different pairs and he eventually he was just like no i don't like any of these i'm just gonna wear my own shoes and they were falling apart throughout the whole movie they were basically held together by super glue and so with their super limited budget they basically knew they would have no ability to pay for anything in post-production. So almost everything in the movie is done with practical effects. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the weird stuff is basically just trash bags, um, which kind of works out since right. the trash bags actually are important to the plot. Like the brick is wrapped in a trash bag. Emily's body is wrapped in the trash bag. It appears in his uh, like dream sequence in the tunnel and a lot of the, the transitions towards the end where he's sort of like coming in and out of consciousness. It's basically mm -hmm. just like them moving fragments of trash bags in front of the camera. Well, it's such a more interesting idea than just fade to black and because it works thematically with the rest of the movie. But that cat does get knocked out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so, like, all of the, the car scenes, um, they filmed at, like, super slow speeds moving backwards. They had the actress Emily playing the character Emily walking um, backwards into the tunnel and then played it forward. I actually noticed that this time because some of the fight scenes have really interesting camera motion choices. Uh, yeah. You know, like, times, yeah, that he's laying on the ground. And there's speed ups and slow downs that are artificial, like not the way that they filmed it. The first time that Tug punches Brendan on the commentary track, Ryan Johnson actually goes into a lot of detail for like how they set up that shot and filmed it um, in two pieces and then kind of like put them 
together. And that's one of the things that he was saying is that basically they made this movie with no money and it forced their hand in a lot of ways to make, you know, they were constantly just MacGyvering the shit out of this movie. And you can tell, but it led to some really interesting creative choices that they probably wouldn't have done if they had had, you know, $5 million or whatever. The thing about this that struck me this time around, like as I'm preparing to talk to people that don't spend quite as much time thinking about hard-boiled detective fiction as I do, I don't know if there are people who spend that much time, but I know (laughs) you guys are probably not them. Um, Dashiell Hammett is kind of credited as the the like inventor of this hard-boiled detective stuff. I would say not the perfecter, because again, I like Hammett, but I don't love him. My guy, the guy I would say perfected it, as far as I'm concerned, Raymond Chandler, talking about Hammett, said he gave murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse. Because that was murder mysteries before then were just like puzzles to solve, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. point here is that originally hard-boiled Detective stuff was supposed to, like, go back and ground it in realism. But this movie, some of those choices that they had to make, it gives it this. And also the fact that we have this intensely period dialogue coming out of teenagers in 2005 Southern California just gives the whole thing this really surreal air to me. Yeah. Yeah. That is just, again, it's not a bad choice. It's just considering the influences and what the influences were doing. Again, watching that permutation through other people's, you know, creative process. And when when the new piece becomes the influence on the next new piece, how does that change? It was, because it's weird. This doesn't feel like a real thing. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I definitely thought that on the rewatch, I was thinking of things like uh, A Knight's Tale or um, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, where either you're buying this or you're not, and you don't know if it's the perspective of the hero or if it is just an alternate universe where people talk this way, kind of like when they do Shakespeare in a modern setting movie and yeah. yeah, And you're you're just like, this is the world, you know? Right. Right. It's not your world, but this is the world buy in or don't. Now's the time. Right. I was actually (laughs) thinking how much the, the rhythm of that hard boiled language sounded so much like iambic pentameter. And Mm -hmm. I feel like this movie makes me appreciate Shakespeare more because it's the the rhythm of the language and just like how weird it all is. It's kind of like halfway there. And I feel like now that I love this so much, I kind of want to go back and revisit some of that other stuff because I feel like I can I can appreciate it better now. That iambic pentameter, that rhythm, I, I, I felt a lot like the plot for this is very Hammett. The dialogue is very Chandler. And one of the reasons I feel that way is that that kind of almost poetic rhythm you're talking about. Chandler is an American, but because of a broken home, he was educated in England, oh. like as a, as a boy in English public school. And so when he started writing detective fiction, he was like, well, I'm going to write literature. And people said, but it has detectives in it. And he goes, yes, I know. <laughs> it's still going to be literature even though it's detective stories, you know? And so he wanted to bring every bit of his education to the thing without turning it into something that wasn't quintessentially American, Southern California and filthy, you know, like, like part of this dirty world, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that comes through. I think that that's a thing that happens when he let, when he started writing movies 
especially because then you're hearing it spoken. It's not just on the page. And it just, I think you're onto something. Like, I'm not good enough at iambic pentameter to figure out if that's what they're actually doing for every time. But that rhythm, that there is a rhythm to be had there, I think we owe broadly to Chandler. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't think it's actually iambic pentameter, but it's something that's, like, kind of analogous to it. Like, there's definitely yeah. a, a very specific rhythm that they're going for. And I guess you were talking about buying into the movie or not i feel like the scene where i really like fully buy into the movie is when he gets pulled into the assistant vice principal's office and they sort of have their like yeah back and forth uh interrogation and the dialogue there is so amazing it's so amazing they hang a lampshade on it in the scene yeah <laughs> so you didn't know this boy no sir never seen him mm. and he just hit you like I said, he asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it. Okay, Brandon. I've been looking to talk to you. Man, you've helped this office out before. No. I gave you chair to see him eaten, not to see you fed. Yeah. Fine. Very well put. Accelerated English, Mrs. Kasperzik. Tough teacher. Tough, but fair. Okay. We know you're clean. And you, despite your motives, you've always been an asset to this office. And you're a good kid. Uh-huh. I want to run some names past you. Hold it, we're not done here. I was done here three months ago. I told you then I'd give you Jer, and that was that. I'm not your inside line, oh. and I'm not your boy. That's not very You helpful. know what I'm in if the wrong Yeg Summy pulled in here? What are you in? No. And no more of these informal chats either. You got a discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend me. And I'll see you at the parent conference. Hold on. I could write you up for talking back to a VP. And for looking at me in that threatening way. I would exercise a little tact, Mr. Fry. You can't pull a stunt like that unless there's something I need you for. So is there? Maybe. Maybe there's something you need from me. Maybe. All right, I need you off my back completely for the next few weeks. There might be some heat soon. If it's something I can't cover, I won't go to bat for you. If I get caught like that, it's curtains anyway. I can't have brass cutting me favors in public. Just letting you know now so you don't come kicking in my homeroom door once trouble starts. Okay, here's what I can do. I won't pin you for anything you aren't caught at. But if anything comes up with your prints on it, I can't help you. Also, if I get to the bottom, whatever this is, and it gets too hot, and you don't deliver, Beep's gonna need someone to turn over, police-wise. And I'll have you. So there better be some. It is like you said. It is like you said. Or at least a fall guy. At least a fall guy. Or you're it. Or you're it. Uh, mentioning one of Ryan Johnson's teachers. That was his advanced English teacher's name. Oh. I heard I heard that somewhere. I'm pretty sure about that. And that whole, uh, she's tough, tough but fair. He was writing about a, an actual person. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> and I that scene that. was actually filmed in the actual assistant vice principal's office at the school. Like all of those tchotchkes on the desk, that was like 
they didn't design any of that. That was Fantastic. just real. And because it was a real room, it was like a, a like a tiny little office. That's why like so many of the angles are like really tight and sort of like looking up from the floor because they just like they there was no space to be farther back. No, but that's perfect. It's a great way to shoot shaft. Though. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's perfect. Um, I, I I have a podcast where I talk about Batman the animated series and. We were talking about these really tight noir style shots that they would do on this cartoon show. And I can draw direct parallels to like Billy Wilder movies and Howard Hawks movies where it's very tight and you can see the sweat. Like they took the time to draw the sweat because that's how it worked in those movies. So that's mm-hmm. another place where you're you're forced by the necessity of your surroundings to emulate your influences further. It's so cool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And in that scene, like you said, I think that's where it will click for you that like, oh, this is a cop. And this is like the detective that has a a foot in each world, but it's also the principal and the student. And you're okay. This is what this movie is. I really feel like that scene should land earlier. It shouldn't be like the first thing because I think that it's, it opens so brilliantly. But I do think it should be moved up so that you kind of understand the concept of like, okay, we're marrying these two genres and this is how it works. Yeah. It's also, Ryan Johnson points out that like, it's one of the two scenes where the two genres do sort of like come together and like rub up against each other in in a way. And, and those are the two funniest scenes in the movie, right? It's... Um, that one with the assistant VP, and then the scene with the pin's mom where she's like serving <laughs> everybody juice or milk. <laughs> that whole um, thing's great. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like one of the comments that my friends gave after the movie was I didn't expect it to be as funny as it was. And most of it's not that funny, but those two scenes are like so fucking funny that that's what you end up remembering afterwards. Upon rewatches, there's even some more kind of like depth there. I mean, you know, it's very uh, confrontational in the assistant vice principal's office. But a thing I've noticed with mom is when she finishes being the hostess and then she looks at what's go at these very serious young people and is like, well, I'm going to go in the other room and do something else. And I was like, that woman knows that she is living in a house that runs a criminal enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> she doesn't want to hear about it. She pretends she doesn't know, but that woman knows and she just goes in the other room to do something else whenever criminal shit is happening. Yeah. So it's a little sinister, right? Like what is it like to live in the pins house all the time? Yeah. Um you were uh you were talking about how that was the moment, that was the scene that you knew and that it was the dialogue. Can I share an a humorous anecdote about when this movie lost my wife? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Because okay. it's a hundred percent about the dialogue. It's so good. Um so the friend of mine that told me I needed to see this movie, I, I don't know how he discovered it, but he called me at work from work, like one afternoon and was like, I just stumbled on this movie, we have to see this movie. So I get it. And he comes over to watch it and my wife is watching it with us. And there is a moment when Brendan says to the brain, uh, something like some skell. And my wife who has already been struggling up till this point says, what's a skell. And I look at my buddy and then I look at my wife and completely unironically, I was not trying to do a thing in this moment. I go, I don't know, kind of like a yeg. And she was like, fuck this and got up and left. Like she was done. <laughs> 
and and my and my buddy Jeff is sitting there and he's like, yeah, that's about right. Oh my god, basically a yeg. No irony. Wasn't trying to get away with a thing. Lost her in that moment. There it is. (laughs) So now that we've like talked about all this production and and the actors and stuff, I really want to know uh, how you first, like you've talked about it a little bit, like your first experience, but like, let's get in a little bit deeper about what this movie means to you, Josh, and like how uh, it spun you when you first watched it and how it's influenced you like going forward since that time. Like, tell me the story of, of watching this movie. So I I did say a little bit that this one particular friend of mine who knows me very well when it comes to a couple of influences, you know, he was with me in college when I made four different sets of friends go see Can't Hardly Wait in the theater on opening weekend. And he said no. (laughs) So he's not there for the teensploitation, right? Um, But he is there for the Chandler and the Hammett. And so all that stuff was just swimming in me. Oh my gosh, since I was very young, you know, um, I accidentally read Chandler when I was in like seventh or eighth grade for the first time because we were going on one of those long drive family vacations and I was allowed to take one book. So I went and got a really big one and they had a collection with like four of his novels in it. That's how I discovered it. Um, And I did like mysteries like I was in I'd read Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and all that stuff. But I picked this one big book, guy in a trench coat on the cover, you know, kind of thing. And I mean, on the first page of The Big Sleep, I was like, this is something completely different. And I am here for it, you know, like right away. (laughs) I might have had my first moment when I wanted to be a writer without realizing it while I was reading The Big Sleep. There's this moment in The Big Sleep when the main character, Philip Marlowe, is returning to a place where there was a murder victim. There was a dead man. He got his client out of there. And then came back, and when he comes in, the body's not there anymore. But there are, like, tracks in the carpet where they dragged him out. And he says, somebody really wanted that body gone because dead bodies are heavier than broken hearts. And I was like, I am never going to write anything that good in my whole life. And that could be really (laughs) cheesy. It could be really cheesy. But in this moment where he has just, like, walked through the rain miles and miles across Southern California because... He drove his client home in her car and then had to walk back to where his car was. You know, I knew I was into a different thing. Like this is a filthy crime story that also has poetry. This is this is actually goes back to my superhero stuff, too. X-Men comics are basically high school, you know, and then Legion of Superheroes is basically superhero high school in the future. And I loved that stuff as (laughs) as a teen and shortly out of being a teenager. So. These just really early influences slammed together. When he called me, I was like, well, yes, you are correct. This is made in a lab for me. When can we see it? And then we just did it. You know, I think I think this was uh, early enough. I had to wait for the disc to be mailed to me from Netflix, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. I remember those. That days. was how we did it. And I just, yeah, I mean, I just knew what it was right away. And it's just so rare to get something so quintessentially of the stuff you love that shouldn't or doesn't often get put together, slam together, you know? And now it kind of happens all the time because this is also sort of in a very different way, like Riverdale, you know, and Veronica Mars. It happens more often mm. now. We're more open to that mashup. But at the time when it was like, this doesn't happen. And and even within that, this is pretty specific to me. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is this is just just for me. I could not believe it existed. 
I mean, and it almost didn't exist. It was like right. a lot of people put themselves on the line to get this movie made. Yeah, and when he was talking about making this and being very aware of the fact that they were like on this edge walking this tightrope and like everybody had to have kind of the same vision and expectations because this movie very easily could have been horrible. Like it could have been so bad. (laughs) There's a way where that kind of idiosyncratic dialogue instead just becomes pastiche, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that was, I think the reason why the movie works is because it is so earnest. There's no winking at all. Yeah, and I think part of that would be also because it's a writer-director situation. You put this script in somebody else's hand, and you've got like a very different no telling thing what you get going to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I think you get a, a lucky number eleven out of it, or something like that. Oh my god, nailed like, it! Oh yes, that is exactly <laughs> you know, what like, you get. Yes, is that movie yeah. bad? Uh, yeah. That's also the right answer. <laughs> I, it should, I should like it a lot more than I do, and I don't like it very exactly. much. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay. But I sure yeah. thought I was going to. I, actually, the first time that I watched this, like, I, and when I remember this movie, I'm always getting it mixed up with the movie Kids, and you talk about Teen's PlayStation. Like, to me, that's, it's like a movie out of the 90s that is, I don't know, have you seen Kids, Josh? Yes, um, but not since I, it was very fresh. You know, like right then. Right. Me too. Um, Well, not right then, but when I saw it, um, because this was like, I couldn't have watched it when it came out because of the household that I grew up in. But Kids was like this really weird movie that was kind of like scare the shit out of grownups about kids in the 90s. Yeah. And and be like, did you know kids are playing Mortal Kombat and that it makes them want to murder people Uh, kind of movie? But I watched that movie around the same time that I watched this movie. And like you said, with the Netflix coming in the mail, I was watching all kinds of crazy shit at that time of uh, like altered states and like, um, you know, Yojimbo and just like it was it was basically like I could watch anything and just wait (laughs) for it to roll in to my house and I'm going to watch all of it. Like it was so fantastic. In a way that I feel like Netflix now, like I flip through it and I'm like, eh, I don't want to watch any of this. But for some reason, like picking those discs and going through everything that I could watch was like a different kind of experience. But I, I definitely had kids in this movie at the same time and like flipped from one to the other and watched it with a couple of my college buddies. And we were like, what what just happened? Like, <laughs> I think we watched him in one night. My mind is expanded, we like, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened to me, but I'm not the same person yeah. anymore that I was. Um, so so I first watched Brick actually like right after it came out um, because a high school friend of mine, uh, we were not in high school at the time, but a high school friend of mine recommended it. And I was just like, oh my God, this is awesome. I love things that like Alan said, uh, make me go, what was that? Like all of my favorite mm-hmm. movies I basically watched twice in the same weekend the first time I saw them because at the end of one viewing, I like didn't get it, but really wanted to. Um, and, and this was one of those movies. And then I kind of forgot about it for a long time. Um, I honestly like, 
I think I maybe have rewatched it once since then um, with my boyfriend. And, like, he thought it was fine, but he didn't love it the way I did. And so, you know, I just, I know about you because of your um, involvement in our community. Like, I, the first time I mm-hmm. heard you was when you were on Mandy's show, Pop Culturally Deprived, oh. talking about Batman. Yes. Um, that makes sense. And then, of course... <laughs> you teamed up with Lonnie to do listen up a holes. And so as I kind of got to know you through those podcasts and, you know, I was thinking about programming for the show, I was basically just like, we should watch brick and we need to invite Joshua to come talk about it. (laughs) The, the Frank Miller Batman connection makes a lot of sense. I mean, Frank Miller knows also knows his influences. He's by the way, everybody who's listening, don't read new Frank Miller stuff. He's awful. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, he was probably awful then, but it didn't wind up into the you story didn't... quite so often. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was doing hard-boiled Batman. Like, for, for some reason, uh, well, I, I mean, the timing doesn't quite work out, uh, is why I say for some reason. But, like, uh, Gotham City looks like New York before they started trying to clean up Times Square. Only everywhere. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Because that's that's what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing at at the moment. How often did I get hard boiled superheroes? Well, I didn't read Daredevil, so that meant never right. until the guy who wrote Daredevil <laughs> wrote a Batman story. You know, so yeah, okay, all right. That can can I say the nicest thing about Brick that I can say as a creator? Sure, it makes mm-hmm. me want to make more stuff. Like like I had story ideas watching brick i had i have text messages with my co-writer about how brick made me want to do a thing in the stuff that we're working on but it doesn't quite fit and then by the end of the movie i was like i think i figured it out you know (laughs) i wasn't really trying to be a writer the last time that i sat down and watched brick so i didn't have that experience before but this time i was like oh well okay that's why i didn't own it like i had to go rent it and this time I'm like, no, this needs to be on my shelf because it makes me want to go make new things. This is perfect. <laughs> In case of a of creative emergency, break glass on brick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So we've kind of been talking around the story a little bit. I want to like get into the story a little more. Like trying to think about what this movie actually means. So going back to to Lonnie's, like, how story works, right? Like, the meaning of a thing is how the world is changed from the beginning to the end. The world itself is not that changed, right? Like, it starts out with Emily being dead. I mean, not really, but yes, it does. And, um, (laughs) like, to what extent is Brendan's character different at the end than at the beginning? Like, he's achieved his goal of finding out what happened to her, but... I have a hot take here. Yes, go for it. So at the beginning of the movie, and I would say the chronological beginning, when we meet Brendan opening his locker and getting the note that kind of starts the actual story, mm-hmm. he thinks that his world is ruined and it can't get any worse. And by the end of the movie, he realizes how wrong he was. That now it's it's worse. Mm-hmm. Now this is what real desolation looks like in my life. I see. Mm-hmm. That's what I that's what I would say, which, again, it comes back to this very noir. Like, yeah. oh, you thought it was bad. That's precious. Let me show you what actual bad looks like. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I think that's why I was like initially kind of confused trying to think about it, because I'm not used to that 
hard-boiled thing of the whole point of it is that you think it's bad, but it's actually worse. <laughs> and that kind yeah. of is, is like where where the movie lands. The way that I talk about this in terms of like kind of a how story works kind of approach uh-huh. is every story has a story question, right? This is what the story is about. And when you get to the end, most stories say yes. In every single hard-boiled or noir piece, the answer is no or yes, but. That is as good as it gets, is yes, but. And the Mm -hmm. but is bigger than the Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's here. Like, oh, Brendan, is your life ruined because Emily's not in it? Well, let's bring her back for a minute and show you what actual ruination is. You know. Um, (laughs) And and it happens because of who you quintessentially are. Mm -hmm. A line that really Mm -hmm. stood out to me, this watch, is in his kind of a... Like mental flashback, you don't get the actual scene for the most part, but you get the voiceover. And when he says, you're the only thing I love, and this is how I do it. And I was like, oh, that's the moment of your downfall, son. That's the time. Uh, that line just really stood out to me this time. And I was like, yep, yep, this is this was not a thing that Emily, I don't want to say Emily did to him, but like their breakup did to him. He was this guy before the breakup. Mm-hmm. Right. So to get very English major about this, if you look at the time of like Chandler and um, what was going on in modernism, like to to make a wild English major comparison and compare like Chandler to Orwell, you have a picture of the world that is a kind of like morally desolate place. Yes, But the difference between those two is kind of like, the eternal struggle in, if, if I can get really dramatic, uh, on an English major scale between the romantics and the realists. And so you have Orwell, who's this realist that says, like, there is no such thing as a good man in a bad world. And then you have the romantics that say, true suffering is being a good man in an evil world. And that's kind of what Chandler is all about. Yeah, definitely. He's he's still a, a romantic in a way, but it's a world where in both cases you can never really win. And you definitely can't rely on the institutions that are supposed to provide justice. You can only get justice if you make it for yourself, but the cost will be so high. And, and I think that's what's happening for Brendan here too. Mm-hmm. He wants to find who killed her and he wants to get the justice that he can, the cost is so high that, um, like you said, he's going to be desolate at the end. And Brain sets that up, too. And he's like, can you help her? No. Can you get the straight mm-hmm. and break some well-deserved teeth on the way? That I can do. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Brendan, go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah just stop, Walk. man. You know, yeah. <laughs> She's dead. But he can't. He can't. And, and this is this is, this is is Phil Marlowe. This is, this is Sam Spade. Sam Spade does not like his dead partner. They were not friends. They did not get along. Mm-hmm. And he keeps, people are like, well, why do you keep wandering around getting yourself in more trouble trying to figure this thing out? And he's like, man's partner dies. You ought to do something about it. It's like, you hate that guy. Right. <laughs> but you're holding on to, you know, this one slim bit of principle, you know. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? <laughs> Makes your life worse. Enjoy it. There's the, the principle angle of it. But there's also, like, you have to be super clever to make it through and survive that world, right? Because Dode is kind yeah. of the counterpoint to Brendan where it's like, um, and to give credit where credit is due, 
Ryan Johnson talked about this also in the commentary that, um, the like Dode is basically if Brendan had a lot of the same motivations and principles, but like half the information and half the brain to process it. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that like confrontation scene of them on the field is really interesting because the way that they kind of reflect off of each other. And Brendan is giving Dode advice to just like give up and leave it alone that like he's not taking himself. He's incapable of taking that advice and is judging Dode to be a fool for not taking that advice. Yes. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> a lot of the characters do seem kind of, I don't know if flat is the right word, right? But they're like, they're interesting but they don't really change over the course of the movie, right? Like, the brain is just the brain. He's always the brain. You know, like, the femme fatale, like, he knows that Laura is bad news from the start. He never trusts her. The ending where he sort of, like, lays it all out, um, what her role in it was, like, as the audience, it's nice to hear that, but, like, it's not really surprising. Um, right. And, like, the pin is... He's, like, an interesting character, but again, like, most of the things that are surprising about him are, like, things that we find out immediately. He doesn't, like, change that much. And maybe there's something about how having these interesting but not super dynamic characters around Brendan, it lets his more subtle emotional and character journey kind of stand out. The pin is 26-year-old Brendan. Because he's clever, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's clearly more clever than his friends. And so he figured out, hey, here's how we take dealing and turn it into an actual business. Mm -hmm. Brendan got out of that in order to sink his ex-friend, Jer. But you get the feeling that it's like, this is the guy who was always the smartest guy in the room. And he's reached the point in criminal enterprise where that's not enough to get the job done anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, again, he if we were telling this from the perspective of the pin, he's got his own tiger by the tail. He's in over his head too because of his choices mm -hmm. and he can't let it go, you know, because if he's not the cleverest guy in the room, then who is he? Nobody. And none of that is, I guess, sort of explicit, but it's also, I'm not pulling it out of thin air either. Every, that, that's another thing is that the more you kind of look at these, uh, these noir stories and you kind of turn it and look at the different facets of the, of the story, you're like, oh yeah, pretty much everybody is in over their head and having a terrible time. Yeah. The point of that genre though, is to be like, you are going to be in over your head as like, that is life. Do you want to have some principles or not while mm -hmm. you're at it? You know, is, is it better to live for something or be run by something? Yes. Like that's your yeah. choice. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. That's also in addition to kind of the poetry. That's another reason that I prefer Chandler over Hammett because Hammett, Hammett heroes tend towards Brendan where you're holding on to the principle and it makes it worse. Whereas like Phil Marlowe, I hate, man, spoiler warning for 70 plus year old novel, I guess. But um, <laughs> like he has one guiding principle all through the big sleep is that he does not betray his client. And in the end, he has to lie right to his client's face. And it's better. He would be a more awful human being if he told his client the truth. He, he saves the old man's feelings by sacrificing his principle. And that's a little more noble, right? Than just, mm -hmm. I rode my need to know what happened to my dead girlfriend to the point that I ruined basically two dozen lives, including my own, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I I love the poetry of noir, but in my heart, I like to be an optimist. And so I need, <laughs> I kind of <laughs> prefer Chandler's heroes who do still sacrifice themselves in a very noir. Well, I say his novel heroes because that is not true for his, the people that he wrote in movies necessarily. But, um, you know, like Philip Marlowe, he, he gives up a piece of himself, but he does it for the best reasons instead of the worst reasons. So can we talk about women in this movie and maybe also women in noir more generally one of the things that we do on this podcast is just like try to be aware of different kinds of representation Mm -hmm. and there are no like good female characters in this movie but there are also no real good and i'm using like with the capital G, like, male characters, right? Yeah. Aside Nobody's from good. Brendan. Yeah. So it doesn't feel uneven or, like, bad representation to me. And I guess I was just sort of, like, trying to maybe figure out why. Lonnie and I talk about this in terms of uh, Agent Carter, actually, um, where you have evil women... And it's fine. We in, Good representation of women does not mean they all have to be good people. It means that they need to be fully realized characters, you know. Mm-hmm. And we don't exactly know everything that Emily wants, but we can tell she wants things and that she actualizes herself through that. You know, a, a bad, a worse representation might be one who kind of stayed with Brendan because he's the strong personality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the case of, uh, of Laura... She definitely wants things and gets them, you know, Uh, again, to her detriment. But I mean, it's not we don't need capital G good. We don't need them to be virtuous. We just need them to be fully realized characters, be people in this story, not props. I guess the one thing that does make me a little bit uncomfortable is like, I can't tell how much the movie is judging Emily for her sexual promiscuity. Like, she pretty much has oh. slept with at least half of the main male characters in the movie. Mm. And, you know, and then there's the whole, like, paternity of her baby that ends up being, like, a, a plot point. I feel like that information is used as a weapon against Brendan, but not in a slut shamey way. Be- because Brendan never gets upset to know that she has other partners. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. upset that she's not with him. You know, right. Um, Laura definitely says those things in a judgy way, but I think she's doing it to hurt Brendan. It doesn't feel that judgy, except when except when Laura is doing it to hurt somebody with it. You know. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't rub me the. It doesn't rub me the wrong way while I'm watching the movie, but then when I'm thinking about it afterwards, I'm I'm like trying to figure out why it doesn't bother me in the yes, movie. Yes. Yes. For some reason, it doesn't really feel like the movie is judging her for that it just feels like her life is complicated and she's yeah going after what she wants and and like the movie's pretty okay with that when she gets murdered right it doesn't feel like the movie is punishing her it's just like that's the world that we live in i think in and you could correct me or or add to this as you as you think uh josh but I think in the genre of like hard-boiled fiction and noir, uh, women are portrayed as more vulnerable, especially like in terms of violence, like they're more vulnerable to violence. Yeah. yeah. But that they use they use that vulnerability as a springboard to be tricksters 
so they will present as vulnerable mm-hmm. to draw in uh, other characters and manipulate them to their ends. There is definitely like a bed of sexism there where, because I made the joke at the yeah. top of the show, right? Where, of course, it's a man who's been brought low by a woman. Listen, Brendan brought himself low, you know? <laughs> right. But at the same time, you can see we're we're playing with that uh, um, that very of the time, which is still sadly more of the time now than we'd like it to be, where, oh, yeah, she left him and ruined him. No, he made bad life choices. She left, and he doesn't like his current situation. That's not the same thing, yeah. you know. But, yeah, definitely that's part of the femme fatale stuff is that they get in by being vulnerable. And and I actually think Laura subverts that largely. Like, she's not dangerous in the same way that Tug is or even that Brendan is. She doesn't argue with Brendan when he says he can't trust her because she's dangerous. She's like, well, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Let me let me try and convince <laughs> yeah. you differently. And it's not until the end that we see anything physical between them, and that's left ambiguous regardless. So mm-hmm. she subverts a lot of the usual femme fatale stuff, I think. No, I would agree with that. Yeah. If you look at the archetype from the genre, and that's more what I was referring to as like yeah. broadly in the genre, that's... Uh, how women operate, uh, especially the femme fatale in a noir story. But I do think that Ryan Johnson in the construction of this story kind of mitigated some of the problematic elements of those archetypes, um, but still preserves like the way that they operate in the story, mm-hmm. like, you know, from a story craft yeah, perspective, yeah. you know, cause a quick watch of this movie could have you go like, well, she's a pretty typical femme fatale, you know, blah, but a close watch, you're like, no, she's very different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So like before we start really wrapping it up, what has been your experience recommending this movie to other people? Um, and do you have any other f- sort of final thoughts about it? As far as final thoughts, I, I feel like I, if you know me at all, you know that the nicest thing I can say about something is it makes me want to go make other stuff. So I feel like I've said the best thing I can say about Brick. Um, at the same time, man, recommending this is a tricky business. You know, I don't want to have to hand people a primer for it, you know? Um, yeah. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you need to know a little bit about what you're getting into. Or, or I need to be prepared to call a timeout. Uh, let's have a bathroom break and talk about where it lost you because I think I can bring it back, but maybe not, yeah. you know? Um, Cause again, I'm thinking about my wife who like has watched Chinatown with me. She watched Yojimba with me. She's read the big sleep. We'd been married 10 years before I let her read the big sleep. Cause I didn't want to know what would happen if the person I married didn't like my favorite novel. Um, I didn't want to know. So we'd been married long enough that I was in too deep, you know? Um, so, I mean, she's kind of come along with me on a lot of this style of fiction, but this one just lost her in the language. So I feel like whatever I said to anybody, I'd be, I'd need to prepare them for the very idiosyncratic dialogue and probably turn the subtitles on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, we they talk I, fast. I watch it with the subtitles every single time. Otherwise you have no idea what's going on. Well, you have no idea. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, th- I say that like, general um, you, yeah. So I have a friend of mine. Oh, it happens to be the same person that told me to watch Brick, who listens to a lot of uh, like Irish folk music, you know. And so when he saw Snatch, he understood Brad Pitt. Really? Uh, that's great. And I save your breath and cured your parts. And look, so what's a heck of two roof lights? Uh, the sinus house frame furniture and the uh, scar cushions with uh, matching shack by cover. Yeah. 
Ray, it's a terrible parcel to the Paddywinkle Blue Bass. Have I made myself clear, Bass? Yeah, that's perfectly clear, Mickey, yeah. And I feel like that's me with the brick dialogue, where I'm like, well, other people may need subtitles. Okay. <laughs> I showed up kind of ready for this one, you know. Um, but yeah, so I would definitely recommend it because it's such an incredibly well put together piece of fiction and, and filmmaking. But if I wanted them to, to enjoy it, I kind of, I need to prepare them for a little bit of what kind of movie it is. That's what I would say. What, what do you guys think? Oh, that's spot on. Yeah, I think it does need a little bit of a primer and be like, like I said, it's it's like one of those things where I love uh, Shakespeare movies that move everything into that, like visually into the modern idiom. But it's like you got to tell somebody first, like this is not costume Shakespeare. This is they're going to have machine guns. They're going to have <laughs> like there's going to be tanks. It's weird. But it's cool once you get over the hump of the language. Like, after you have to sink into it. This is not the kind of thing that you can have your phone going for. Yeah. This is not, you know, like, mm-hmm. that's it's not that kind of movie. And as long as you know that, I think you could watch uh, and have a really great time. I had, it. like, six people over to watch it. And they they all, I think, enjoyed it. I'm not sure if they loved it <laughs> quite as much as I did. But, you know... I think it worked for them. And also it probably helped that um, I love doing like themed dinner and movies. Um, And so this movie lends itself really nice to uh, eating pie while watching it. (laughs) So I like (laughs) made everybody like homemade vegetable pot pie. um, And and so it was yeah, it was fun. I guess if I had one other final thing to say about the movie, it's just that I love how singular this movie is. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a gimmick, but it's not really a gimmick. Like the gim- it's so well executed and the gimmick is like really in service to what it's trying to do. But I'm I'm like don't think that this movie could be done again. Or at least it would feel kind of cheap if it did. Um, so, yeah. It's like, it's miraculous that this movie got made and that it's as good as it is. And, like, I kind of just marvel at it. That it exists and that it's so good. Agree. Um, so, come join us next month for an episode on uh, the movie Obvious Child. Um, which So, we're done with our guest run. It's going to be um, back to just me and Alan for a bit. Um, and this movie is a movie that I um, have actually only seen once, but I loved it. It was um, the first date movie uh, that I went on with my current fiancé uh, about... Three and a half years ago, um, and and it's the best abortion rom com uh, that I've ever seen. So, uh, which is, <laughs> you know, that, speaking that of well trying to, genre. yeah, speaking of trying to sell movies to people, <laughs> um, and, and <laughs> weird genre mix ups. Uh, this is the abortion rom com. I haven't watched uh, Obvious Child yet, but um, like I've set up the website for it and all that stuff on our, on our website and people should go check out our website because there's lots of cool stuff there. Um, so I'm excited to look at it because the, there was like a lot of indie awards and, um, I really enjoyed, uh, me, you and everybody we know 
and it feels like not exactly the same type of energy, but like this um, female lead comedy, like offbeat kind of uh, sensibility to it. And uh, I'm excited to send you text messages <laughs> while I watch it. Yeah. And so actually the main character in the the movie is played by Jenny Slate, who is a real life stand-up comedian. And the character is also a stand-up comedian. Um, and a lot of the movie is kind of just like, her doing stand-up but it, they it's like the her various shows are like plot relevant um to the larger story um but in her shows there's a lot of just sort of like unapologetically raunchy female perspective comedy which i mm-hmm. love because it's like not a very mainstream thing that you get to see very often and it and it plays into I think the sort of like more thematic and political things that the movie is trying to say like it all just comes together in a very um in a very wonderful way cool um and also uh it's named for a Paul Simon song that is really awesome and featured heavily in the soundtrack so uh Ah. yeah um If you like what we do, don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way for new people to find our show besides, I guess, word of mouth. Also, feel free to tell your friends about us. And this past month, we had Anna go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And we really appreciate that. Thank you so much for doing that. It really helps us. And so we wrote a poem for you. An ear for podcasts, an eye for photography, a heart for the truth. Thank you again, Anna, so much. So if you want to hear us uh, read original mediocre poetry, uh, leave us a review (laughs) and we'll do it. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Josh, why don't you lead us out by telling us about all of your myriad amazing projects and where we can find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Joshua Unruh, J-O-S-H-U-A-U-N-R-U-H. Buckle up for political rants and also gushing about whatever thing I'm watching and enjoying or destroying whatever I'm watching and hating. That's basically what Twitter comes down to. Uh, For my podcasts, you can find those at pulpdiction.biz, P-U-L-P-D-I-C-T-I-O-N dot B-I-Z. And I did mention that I write things, so... Yes, which I completely forgot about. I feel really bad about that. (laughs) No, it's fine. I I mean, I'm here more as podcaster, but it came up because I've written a couple of, um... Uh, you know, hard-boiled detective type things. So uh, if it sounds like I know what I'm talking about uh, and you like genre mashups, because the most hard-boiled thing I wrote is a short story where it's the uh, 40s San Francisco and magic came back. Oh, oh, so, good. Um, it's called Hob Lezatz for Hire. Uh, but I've, I've written a bunch of stuff. I wrote, I wrote a weird Western. I wrote a, t- a tween spy-fi. So if you like that stuff, you can just find me on Amazon or iBooks or whatever. But that's also all kept in one place with links to your favorite bookstores at joshuaunruh.com. Uh, what's the name of your, your first novel that you spent a decade revising over and over again? Uh, that would be Hellbent for Leather. Okay. It's the weird western. Nice. 
It is available on Amazon iBooks and all that fun stuff. Fantastic cover from my friend Brett Grimes, um, who does amazing covers for me on a friends and family discount. Hire him. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's a story about a cowboy who can see ghosts and stuff, and his friend sells his soul to the devil and doesn't tell him about it until after the devil's already come to collect, and now it's up to our main character to save his best friend's soul after the fact. Oh, that's awesome. And his name is Chet Leather. That's why it's called Hellbent for Leather. <laughs> that's great. I love it. <laughs> but that's me. That's all my stuff. I write stuff. I record stuff. It's a, All the writing stuff is joshuaunruh.com, and all the recording and listening stuff is pulpdiction.biz. Cool. And do you have a Patreon? I do. Um, I, I kind of have two uh, because the one for writing things, I have a co-writer um, and we write mystery man fiction, which is kind of like hard boiled superheroes, but it's from before there were superheroes. So that's a whole other show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, mm-hmm. That one is mm-hmm. patreon.com slash pulp diction press. And then all the recording stuff, the podcast stuff, which is mainly superhero focused is uh, patreon.com slash pulp diction productions. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, and I'm Anya and you can follow me on Twitter at strangely literal. That's L I T E R L. I'm Alan and you can follow me on Twitter at chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast, and visit our website at hgstorycast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.